And would you please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 12. <clears throat> Acts, chapter 12. We have seen that persecution has returned now from another quarter, but it's returned upon the church, which Jesus very clearly forewarned his people, his disciples, this would happen. They will persecute you, and they are here in this chapter doing just that. Now, last week, we looked at the miraculous deliverance of Peter from prison. He was put there by Herod Agrippa. King Herod already had the Apostle James beheaded. And because this so pleased the Jews, he had the Apostle Peter arrested and was about to do the same to him. But Luke tells us that constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And God very graciously and wonderfully heard their prayers. The very night before Peter was to be brought out and tried by a kangaroo court, no doubt, he would be executed. But God intervened and sent His angel who delivered Peter from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Their plans and their schemes and their wicked desires were completely frustrated. Peter was gone and they had no idea where. Now, when the angel of the Lord departed from Peter, he left him standing on a road. At first, not really sure if what had just happened actually happened. But when he had come to himself, he realized without a doubt that the Lord had sent his angel and delivered him. And he went out and found the others and he told them what had taken place and says they were astonished or amazed. Now, there's a sense in which they shouldn't have been amazed. They had witnessed so many things already. They had seen Jesus do miraculous things on a daily occurrence. They had seen Him turn water into wine, walk on the water, heal the sick, raise the dead. Surely they understood that with God nothing is impossible. And yet, in another sense, they should always be amazed whenever God intervenes, especially in such a miraculous way. There's a hymn that we sing. It says, All are alike before the highest. Tis easy to our God we know to raise thee up, though low thou liest, to make the rich man poor and low. True wonders still by Him are wrought who setteth up and brings to naught. That's our God. He can do whatever He wants. Now, R.C. Sproul applied it in another way. He said, every time I sing Amazing Grace, I think of two things. He said, first, we should never be amazed by grace because God is so gracious that when He pours His grace out upon us, it shouldn't come as a surprise. But secondly, and conversely, he said, there is a certain sense in which we ought always to be amazed by God's grace so that we never presume upon God. God is a gracious God and it is amazing. And it's amazing, especially 
when He saves such wretches as we are. Well, what about the guards? What happened to them? What happened to Herod? Well, in verses 18 through 19, we see what happened immediately. And then in verses 20 through 24, we see what happened subsequently or sometime later. Well, first of all, what happened immediately, we read in verses 18 and 19 uh, of chapter 12 of Acts. It says, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. And so here we see what what happened immediately uh, to the guards. It says now, uh, as soon as it was day, it was uh, the very next day after Peter had been delivered. It says there was no small stir among the soldiers. I I love those understatements (laughs) Uh, because they they really bring out what really happened. No small stir. No, no, there's a lot that was going on. And you can just imagine. You can imagine what kind of fear must have gripped the hearts of these soldiers. These guards were chained to Peter. But when they woke up, he's gone. You can just hear them. Did you open the gate? Did did you let him go? No, I didn't let him go. Did you let him go? A lot of finger pointing, I'm sure. But no prisoner. They were looking everywhere for some explanation. But just like the prisoner, there wasn't one. And so we're told what they do. Now we look in verse 19 and we see what, what Herod did. We see his response. Uh, again, it says, when he had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards, which he should have done, and questioned them, and then commanded that they should be put to death. And we might think that's a bit of an overreach, or that's the act of a tyrant, but Dr. Sproul reminds us that this command was no arbitrary act on the part of Herod. He was implementing the Justinian Code which applied to all prison guards. According to this code, if a prisoner escaped, the prisoner's sentence, whether it was beating or scourging or crucifixion or beheading, that became that of the guards from under whose watch the prisoner had escaped. So, Peter was going to be beheaded. Now, they must be beheaded. So, that's what happened immediately. But then... We read in verses 20 through 23 what happened subsequently or sometime later to Herod. Let's read those verses. It says, now Herod, in verse 20, had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. 
but the word of God grew and multiplied. So here's something that happened sometime later. Now, biblical scholars aren't sure exactly when this occurred, but it's probably a few months after Peter's miraculous escape. We read at the end of verse 19 that he went down from Judea to Caesarea. That is, Herod went down there. Now, some believe it, speaking of Peter, but uh, Josephus tells us that that's where Herod went. So that's probably most likely speaking of him. Now, almost everything Luke tells us here is corroborated by Josephus, who was this ancient Jewish historian. Uh, one thing that Josephus doesn't mention is this conflict between Herod and the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Luke tells us that Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and we don't know why or what they had done that so displeased the king. But they were in trouble. They weren't actually under his jurisdiction, but they needed King Herod. Uh, they, they needed King Herod because uh, they depended upon him for support, as we read at the end of verse 20. It says, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities, and they had focused on trade and and on commerce, not on agriculture. So they needed food, which the king's country supplied for them. Uh, that was, an, uh, or, or was being threatened to be cut off. And so they needed to do whatever they could to get back into his good graces and keep the supply coming. Well, somehow, perhaps through bribes or gifts, they became friends with someone Close to the king. That's this this man here, Blastus, he's called. Uh, someone who might be close to the king who could persuade him. Well, Blastus was the king's personal aid. And whatever he did must have worked. Before we read in verse 21, uh, that this on a certain day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. He's gathered them to... Let them know what he's going to do and, and how he's lifting these sanctions against them or whatever they were called or this blockade. I don't know, but uh, he, he was going to be gracious to them again. Now, uh, the time had come for the grand ceremony in which the king would announce this reconciliation. Josephus tells us that this took place in Caesarea during a celebration or a festival on behalf of Caesar's well-being. Uh, so it wasn't just for this one purpose, but there were dignitaries gathered there all to pay homage to Caesar and for his well-being. Uh, but notice that Luke here in the book of Acts uh, first points out King Herod's apparel. It says, so on a certain day or set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Now, Josephus tells us a bit more about his apparel. Uh, he says that Herod at this time wore a robe of cloth of silver, so richly woven and framed with such art that when the sun shone on it, it reflected the light with such a luster as dazzled the eyes of the spectators and struck and awe upon them. 
Imagine, here's this king and this shiny, I don't know what you call it, uh, but some kind of fabric that was woven with silver and the sun hit it and it just glistened. He looked like an angel, no doubt. Well, Matthew Henry comments, foolish people value men by their outward appearance. And no better are those who value themselves by the esteem of such, who court it and recommend themselves to it as Herod did, who thought to make up the lack of a royal heart with his royal apparel and sat upon his throne as if that gave him a privilege to trample upon all about him as his footstool. Uh, His power, his great power had gone straight to his head. The response of the people, though, in verse 22, we read, and they kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Charles Simeon explains their what I would call an over the top reaction. (laughs) Uh, They were either struck with the splendor of his appearance or with the force of his eloquence. Or more probably, they were simply flattering him to further gain his favor. That's probably what happened. Men will do that. Or men will be overly impressed by someone. But then notice the response of Herod. It says that that Herod, um, well, it doesn't really say anything that he did negatively. It just says the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. However sincere the crowd was, they were doing it because they were so awestruck or they were trying to manipulate the king. However sincere the crowd was, it appears that Herod, instead of rebuking them as he should have done instantly, he welcomed it and must have relished it. And his foolish pride was swollen. He got a big head, children, that's what we call it. It went straight to his head. Look who I am. Look who they think I am. Now, being himself a Jew, supposedly jealous for the law of God and zealous for the law of God, he must have known better that the very first commandment which Moses brought down from Mount Sinai was this. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet they are saying the voice of a God and not of a man. And he doesn't, he doesn't know more than remain silent. Back in the 60s, a, a, an unknown fan of the guitarist Eric Clapton, he spray painted graffiti on a wall in London. Uh, this graffiti declared very simply, Clapton is God. And someone took a picture and circulated it and and the phrase became instantly famous. And some say this even propelled Eric Clapton, who was early in his career, propelled him uh, to further greatness. It's interesting, though, Clapton's response, he says, I was disgusted and pleased at the same time. He said, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And so that's why he liked it and knew he shouldn't be called that. Uh, so he said, I, I, I liked the intention, but I don't like the intention. Well, it seemed that Herod loved the intention. He loved the accolades. He, he loved what they were saying. 
Now, this is a great contrast to what we find in the Scriptures, that whenever a godly man or woman is offered worship, they immediately reject it in the strongest possible terms. And they point the would-be worshiper to God. We see this in Acts chapter 14, when when the people saw what Paul had done in, in this miracle of healing a man, they raised their voices and they said, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, what did they do? They tore their clothes and they ran among the multitudes crying out, saying, men, what are you, why are you doing these things? We are men with the same nature as you. Not to worship men. In Revelation chapter 19, there we have John falling down to the feet of an angel. A heavenly being. What did the heavenly being say? See that you do not do that. Worship God. You're not allowed to worship an angel or any creature. Revelation 22, the same thing happened. Falls down before an angel who says, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. Worship God. Charles Simeon said, Herod did not claim the honors that were ascribed to him, but he was pleased with them and acquiesced in the judgment of his admirers. Instead of reproving it, Paul and Barnabas when divine honors were offered to them, rent their clothes and ran among the people and expostulated them with the strongest terms. And it was Herod's sin that he accepted the flattery instead of reprobating it with indignation. In like manner, the receiving with complacency the flattering unction of human applause, trifling as it may appear to us, is a very heinous sin in the sight of God. And we see it by God's response. Immediately it says, the angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus again corroborates the whole thing. It happened exactly as Luke said it happened. The angel struck him immediately, but Josephus informs us that he didn't die immediately. He actually lingered in intense pain and agony for five days. And then he died. Now, there's been a lot of speculation, and that's all it can be, is what was his actual ailment? Uh, did he have worms that actually ate him out? Is that what happened? Or did he die and the worms ate him? Uh, it could be something like that. There was some kind of a disease like that in that day. Or it could be his intestines ruptured. We don't know. Uh, but what we know is that God struck him down. God did this. And what a terrible and tragic sight this was. Here's a man who was very great. And now he's reduced to agony and pain and then dies. Immediately. John Calvin calls this whole episode a worthy history. Because it clearly sets before us two things. First of all, it sets before us what God has prepared for the enemies of the church. And secondly, it tells us how much He hates pride. 
Now, those are two lessons I want to think about for a few moments. First of all, it sets before us what God has prepared for the enemies of the church. If you please turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You know, we live in such a wicked world where men are, are thumbing their nose at God, shaking their fists, their little puny fists in the face of God. And they're challenging Him even to their identity. They, uh, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Or a girl, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. Or saying, I'm not either one, I'm something else. Shaking their fists at the face of God. And we see this going on and on, and it seems like they're gaining momentum, and they are, and they're gaining strength, and it seems like more and more people are agreeing with them. And they're expecting you and you and me to agree, to agree with everything they're saying. They want us to agree to say, there's no God who made us, we just evolved all kinds of things. They're, they're shaking their fists and saying, we don't want you around to God. And we see it going on and on. And we wonder, is anything going to ever happen? <laughs> is, it, is this ever going to change? Or are we just going to be swallowed up? Well, this is what God tells us in Second Thessalonians. I don't know if I said first, I meant Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. And he says this to comfort Christians who are in the throes of persecution. They are going through many tribulations, as the Lord has said. And so in verse 4, Paul says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which you endure. They were going through these persecutions and they were enduring. They weren't falling away like so many. But once they are, they find the tribulations in the Christian life, when they find that things aren't a, a rose bed, they, they just walk away. No, they were enduring. But notice he says, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, and that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. They were suffering for Christ's sake. Since, he says, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So what's he talking about? He's talking about a future day, a day of judgment, a day of recompense, a day when wrongs will be made right. And so he says, this day is coming. And he says that he's coming when Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when He comes in that day to be glorified with His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So, he's, he's telling us that God 
has a day planned when he will judge the enemies of the church and his enemies. Well, what these judgments of God that we see here on earth, such as what we just read about Herod, they are a foretaste of that awful judgment of God to come to those who do not know him or his son. And as awful as they appear, they are only a shadow of the misery to come, which is described as a place, the Bible says, where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. It's a terrible place. But these earthly judgments that we see throughout history, These judgments of God are a foretaste. They are a divine warning of what's going to come. The flood is a warning. Peter uses that in 2 Peter, which we'll read in chapter 3. The flood, the raining down of fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are examples of what God has done in the past, telling us that this is what's going to happen in the future. If God judged them, He is going to judge the world. Death of Ahab and Jezebel, wicked king and queen, God poured out His wrath upon them. The dogs, yes, did lick their blood. The dogs did eat Jezebel, just as God said. God said it, and it was done. But that's a warning. But all of this points to the fact that, first of all, God is a God of judgment. We love to speak of God as a God of love and a God of grace. And thankfully, He is all of that and more. But He is also a God of judgment. He is our Creator. He is our lawgiver. And He is our judge. He made us. He tells us what we can do and what we can't do. And He is sworn to judge us in the end. He has appointed a day, the Bible says, in which He will judge the world in righteousness. He'll judge the wicked and He'll judge them with a perfect judgment, with absolute justice. It won't be a kangaroo court. A God who knows all, knows even the hearts of men, knows the thoughts and the intents of their heart. He will judge them for every idle word they've spoken. And it will stop the mouths of everyone. No one will have an argument against Him. No one will be able to shake their puny fist again at Him. He will judge them in righteousness. What will you do when you stand before this holy and awesome God and give an account for your life? You might be tempted to think, well, that this judgment, that's only for the really, really bad people like Herod or like Pontius Pilate who sent the Lord to his crucifixion or Adolf Hitler who murdered millions of Jews or Mussolini or Idi Amin or many others. It's for those kind of people. And thankfully, there will be a day of recompense for them. Sometimes it seems like they get away with it. Other times they don't. But even when they take their own life to escape, they've not escaped anything. They take their life and are that much more quickly taken to judgment. 
and must stand before God. But no, it's not for only those. The Bible says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. All of us. Every single one of us. You will and I will. And what will God judge us for? He'll judge us for our transgressions. Transgressions when we transgress His law, His command. And He'll judge us for our sin. But as those who have fled to Christ for refuge, we are told to actually look forward to that day of judgment. We're to look forward to it. And we can because we have a refuge. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We will not be standing alone before the throne of God giving an account for all of our wickedness. We'll have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the one who has paid the penalty for all of our sins. So, that stops the wrath of God. He, the Bible says, delivers us from the wrath of God. He is the one who recommends us to His Father. I died for them. I paid the penalty for their sins. They are mine. I purchased them. And so we can stand faultless before the throne of God. But only those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Only those. And they have this hope. And it is a great hope. It's not a cross your fingers, I hope I'm going to heaven. It's I know I'm going to heaven because I have a great Savior. Jesus Christ has died for my sins. We have a refuge where we can hide. Shields us from the wrath of God. When the wrath of God is being poured out upon these wicked men and women, it will not be poured out upon His people. They will be welcomed into His presence. Enter, God says, into the joy of the Lord. And He says to those on His left, depart from Me. I never knew you. Depart into the lake of fire. Now that's not preacher's rhetoric. That's what's taught in the Bible. We are a Bible-believing church. We are Bible-believing Christians. That's why we believe it. Not because we want to be mean to anyone. We know that we deserve the same thing. We deserve the same thing that Herod got. We deserve an eternity away from the presence of God. But the second thing this teaches us is how much God hates pride. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not only interesting, but it's instructive that the reason given why, why God struck Herod down was not because he harassed the church or because he killed James the Apostle. But the reason was given because he did not give glory to God. Now, I'm not lessening the heinousness of what he did to the church. The church is the apple of his eye. The church is his beloved. The church is the bride of Christ. But what I'm trying to point out is the heinousness of the sin of pride. To quote Simeon again, 
He said whether the excellency of his oration was real or imaginary, his crime was the same. He gave not glory to God. Now, this is, in truth, a common, as common a sin as any that can be named. For where is there a person possessed with either natural endowments or acquired distinctions who does not pride himself in them instead of giving the glory to the, of them to the Lord? And then he gives several really good examples. He says, the female thinks but little of God when her beauty is admired. Or the man when he is celebrated for his strength and valor. The man of learning or of skill and arts who has advanced himself by successful industry to great opulence readily accepts the adulation paid to his talents and success, little thinking that it is God alone who has made him to differ. God is the one who makes us to differ. What do you have, Paul said to the prideful Christian church in Corinth? What do you have that you didn't receive? <laughs> he went straight to the problem. They were full of pride. They had many gifts in the church. They seemed to be a, a wealthy church. A lots of things good, good happening. But they failed to give glory to God. What do you have that you did not receive? That is, receive from the very hand of God. And if you received it, he said, why are you boasting? As though you didn't receive it. As though it's all part of your doing. Simeon says, little thinking that it is God alone who made him to differ from others given him the power to get wealth. Even the rich man. The Bible says, where did he get his riches? God gave him the power to do it. Not everybody can just go out and get rich. You have to have a certain way to think and a certain way to do things. But he gives that, the Lord says. Perhaps the, the generality will allow this to be an infirmity incident to our nature, but few if any, conceive of it as a heinous sin. What he means by that is we just brush it off. Well, we're just human, you know. <laughs> of course we think like that. We're just human. Everybody does it. And he's right. Everybody does it. That doesn't make it a less heinous sin. In reality, it's a sin of awful magnitude. Matthew Henry said, Pride makes a God of self. Covetous makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that, whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of it. And just like these people worshiping Him, He was accepting that praise. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul traces the reprobate mind to its source. Why did God deliver them over to a reprobate mind? Why was the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? It's very clearly, he says, because when they knew God, and by knowing God, he's looking around, you can see there's a God. Who can visit the Grand Canyon or 
Who can look at a flower? Who can look at a blade of grass and not say there must be a God? But this is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. When they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, but became vain in their thoughts, futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and so forth. Therefore, God gave them over to uncleanness and so forth, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. What a, what a heinous sin this really is. God made us and He made us to glorify Him. That's the first question of the catechism. Or who made you God? Why did God make you for His own glory? He made us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end of man. And yet men turn away and say, no, I've got other plans. I've got other desires. I want to do this and I want to do that. Now we drive to church and we see people mowing their yards, somebody out playing tennis, somebody jogging, uh, somebody at the car load on their way to, to camping or going to a football game or basketball game or something. What are they doing? They're not glorifying God as God. They've got other things to do. They've got other things they want. And anything you put before God, that becomes your God. That's why he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He takes the priority. He ought to. He's God. Some say, well, God, he must be an egomaniac. No, he's God. He's God. And he's a God who says, you must glorify me. And he takes great offense when they do not glorify him and they receive the glory themselves. He says, I will not give my glory to another. You know, when we're complimented, uh, when we're praised, I, mean, I don't think you should tell people, don't, don't say that but you should redirect it. At least, and first of all, in your own heart. If I have this talent, if I have this gift, or I have this this money, or whatever I have, I need to give God the glory. I need to give Him the glory. Never forget when we were in seminary and we ate at, uh, at an elder's house, and he had a very nice home, and they were very industrious, cotton farmers. He owned a John Deere factory or two, owned a bank. He had a lot of money. Now I look back and I, we thought his house was so marvelous. I look back and yeah, it was just okay. <laughs> but we thought it was marvelous. And, and another student was there and, and just asked him at dinner table, don't you feel guilty being so rich? And he had the best answer. He says, no, I feel very thankful. God has blessed me. And he was sharing that blessing with others, with us. Having us, these little seminary students who didn't know what was the front door, invited us in their home, welcomed us, helped us, prayed with us, prayed for us. He was using it for God's glory. But you see, that's giving God the glory, not taking it for ourselves. And that's the problem with pride 
And pride is such a common sin, Spurgeon said, it'll grow on any dunghill. Uh, it's a weed that grows on any dunghill. But it, and it's true. We all have it. But we should hate it. And when we find it in ourselves, which we'll find if we look, we'll repent over it. We'll ask for forgiveness. And we'll ask for God to cleanse us and help us to give you the glory. Great things you have done. It's a warning against flattery, isn't it? How careful we should be, Simeon said, of using any flattering words. Men flatter others because they know that flattery is pleasant to the carnal mind. But it's that very pleasure which offends God and brings down His judgments on the soul. How cruel then it is to expose a brother to such a danger. Would we put poison in his hands just to gratify his palate when we knew that it would speedily put an end to his existence? How then can we seek to gratify his mind at the expense of his soul? This is a thought peculiarly important for those who hear the gospel faithfully administered. They're apt to forget that ministers are men of like passions with themselves and that God particularly forbade that a novice should be admitted to the ministry lest he being lifted up with pride, should fall into the condemnation of the devil. Bear in mind, he says, brethren, that flattery is an ordeal which few can bear. That he who makes use of it spreads a net for his brother's feet. We need to be careful. Receiving flattery or giving flattery. Now, flattery is when we're used to trying to get something from somebody. A compliment is not necessarily flattery. But we need to be careful how we give it. Because we don't want to cause them to stumble. Their heads are, get, they get big, just like Herod's. As much as we hate it, we still indulge in it. They didn't say anything about this. They didn't say anything about what I built over here, or what I did here, or what I did for the church. Somebody said that a lot can be done in the church if nobody cared who got the credit. But if we don't get the credit, we start sulking. And if we get the credit, we start gloating. It's such an awful sin. It's so dangerous for all of us. And we need to be careful. We need to be humble. That's why Jesus said the requisite for entering His kingdom is this. Humble yourselves like a little child. If you don't, you can't enter My kingdom. You can't become one of His disciples if you won't humble yourself. You humble yourself and you come to Him and you say, Lord, teach me. Show me. Show me my sins. Show me the Savior. Show me. You bow before His Word with fear and trembling. You want to be taught from Him. You no longer want to lead yourself. You want Him to lead you. You no longer think that you're okay. You see that you're a sinner before Him. And so you come, you accept whatever He says about you. And you believe whatever He tells you about the Lord Jesus Christ. That He is the Son of God. That He died for our sins. He paid the price. He did everything necessary to bring you to heaven. Which means you can't do anything. God gets all of the glory. That's why we believe salvation, the Bible teaches, salvation is all of grace and all of God. So we don't have a room to boast. 
Everything we've received from Him, we receive from Him by grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Don't flatter yourself that you're okay, that you're going to heaven because you're not as bad as somebody else. That's just pride again. Listen to God's sentence. There's none righteous, no, not one. We are condemned already, the Bible says. That's why we must come to Him for salvation. We must look to Christ to save us, to rescue us. Just like the angel rescued Peter from the dungeon on the night before his beheading, the judgment of God stands over us. And we must turn to Christ. He rescues us. He brings us out of that cell. He sets us on a rock upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us a firm foundation. We live for Him. We no longer live for ourselves. That was the prideful life. But now we live for Him who died and rose on our behalf. That's the humble life. Stay humble. Ask for more humility. Ask the Lord to root out the pride in your hearts. We all have it. We need to be on guard of it. Just like Herod, if he had been on guard, he would have rebuked the people and would have remained alive. He would still have judgment later, but he would have remained alive. But no, God took him, took him away to judgment. May God help us to learn these good, profitable lessons. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this very wonderful part of history. We're amazed at what a great God you are in, in showing your grace and delivering Peter and showing your judgment by striking down this wicked king. Oh Lord, we ask that you, you would be merciful to us. Do not enter into judgment with Your servants. But Lord, show us Your grace. Show us Your mercy. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.